This podcast is supported by Red Energy, powered by the mighty Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Red is 100% Australian owned and local. Phone 131 806. Congratulations! Victoria's housing market has rebounded strongly this year. Hammers were falling once again. Buy numbers per auction are actually up on last year. Rates caused on hold again at 0.25%. National house prices were still rising. A man's home is his castle. And today it goes under the hammer. Welcome to Under the Hammer for Red Energy. Moving house, call local energy retailer Red Energy. Yes, welcome to Under the Hammer. I'm Jane Neild and I am with Ben Reid and also Claire Parks from Ian Reid Buyer and Vendor Advocates. It's fantastic to have you with us on the show today. Of course, each week we catch up and talk all things real estate. And of course, Claire and Ben are more working in the Melbourne market. While we do take a national approach, it's great to see what is happening on the local level. How are you, Ben? I'm pretty good. (laughs) How are you, Claire? Really well, thanks, Jane. So across the weekend, and we are now talking on the 29th of June, we saw chilly but beautiful weather conditions for Melbourne and most of the surrounding regional areas. Sunshine in the middle of winter, surely that puts a spring in the step of everyone out there looking or selling. How was the weekend, Ben? Yeah, it was pretty good. It was sunny, but it was very chilly. Open for inspection numbers right across the board um, were pretty positive. If we look at the auction results from the weekend, there were 415 auctions that were reported on at a clearance rate of 65%. So we're actually at a very similar volume level compared to the same time last year, which is a, uh, a key milestone that we're now sort of getting back up to those types of levels. Last year, there were 463 auctions at a slightly higher clearance rate of 74%. So we have been watching this sort of COVID, post-COVID uh, period very closely, but you seem sort of um, fairly hopeful that things are on the up and up. Well, hopefully we don't regress back into lockdowns because yeah. another 79 cases in Victoria last week. So wash your hands, keep your distance, and yes. hopefully we can all um, enjoy a little bit more normality and not go backwards. Well, but it does seem, though, that there is a little bit of a, a you know a boost in the market now because we could have easily seen these figures go backwards from when we started this show six or so weeks ago. Yeah, I think as we've been expecting auction numbers and private sale numbers will continue to pick up at this time of year. We've got to remember we're in the middle of winter. So ordinarily we would be right at the bottom end of the market in terms of volume. But I expect that as we're getting through winter and towards springtime that we're going to progressively start to pick up so long as these types of conditions are sustained. Now, Claire, you've been out and about on the hunt for uh, people that you are helping to buy a house. Have you noticed that the type of stock has kind of changed? Has it improved or are you seeing lesser quality homes hit the market? Uh, We've noticed most recently over the past couple of weeks that the stock, the quality of stock has actually really improved. So if we were to take that as a sign, it would be a good one. Uh, Yeah, so we were able to pinpoint some homes uh, that were far superior to some of the things that we were experiencing a few weeks ago. So that's really good news. So why would that suddenly start to change, Ben? I find that fascinating that, you know, you're desperate to find a home. You've been searching, searching, searching. And then suddenly things start to look up because better quality homes are being listed. Why? I think confidence levels are are the main um, thing here. And and through the the COVID-19 period, if there wasn't a huge amount of urgency in in your sale, personally or financially, then most sellers chose not to sell during that time. So if you're thinking about it, you maybe have done some painting, a few renovations. We could move suburb, but that clamped down people's potential dreams. Yeah, so as a result of that, there was some... 
rental properties. There were some houses that really weren't presented as well as they could or in some B and C class areas. Whereas now we're starting to see vendors that are taking the opportunity that wanted to sell during the autumn months and now uh, biting the bullet and, and, and going on. And they're doing all the right things to make sure that they're getting the right result. And when you say quality, do you mean homes that are ready to move in or is a quality property also something that has potentially huge value for a buyer willing to get in there and do the hard work? Yeah, a bit of both. Okay. So um, in some of the, the more desirable um, inner city locations, stock levels were really light on, whereas they're starting to pick up. Whereas also in some of the outer suburbs, the better properties within those suburbs uh, are now starting to uh, be available for sale as well. Fantastic. Now, spring is around the corner, which I can only imagine is a very, very busy time for you guys. Do we know much about the sentiment we could expect during the springtime this year, or is really everything just completely out the window now that we're dealing with COVID? Well, certainly we're expecting much higher volumes of stock in spring. So if you're a seller now considering doing something, there are definitely some strong arguments to be doing it sooner rather than later. The pure supply and demand factor would suggest that you could very well get a better result now. But Mm. um, yeah, we're expecting a a pretty full market in springtime this year. So more properties on the market, more people wanting to sell. Typically in spring, you do find that there's more than double or triple the amount of stock that's generally available um, in you know sixty percent of the um, market throughout the rest of the year. They always say though that like if you live in a cold place, oh don't don't sell in the coldest part of the year. Or if you live in a beautiful area that has great native wildlife and bushland, oh don't sell in the middle of summer because of bushfires. And it seems that perhaps we need to loosen some of these ideas that we might have held fast to, Claire, about when is the best time to sell. Yes, certainly. And it's area dependent and it's something that we and agents will always advise their clients. You know, if you've got a beautiful tree-lined street or a beautiful rose garden, clearly the property is going to present differently during uh, those spring months. But then there's, you know, inner city things where it really doesn't matter. So Mm. it's about picking it and, and choosing your mark if that's relevant. Now, my ears have been pricked up now all things real estate, <laughs> you know, reading more articles since we've been doing this show. One phrase that always catches my ear, if you hear someone say, oh, we just bought our home. Oh, we were so lucky. We got an off-market deal. I really need to understand what off-market... It makes me think, what do they know that the rest of the world doesn't? What is this off-market deal? And, and how did you get such a good deal? So today we're going to just go through some of what off-market selling and buying means. So, Ben, can you give us a kind of general explanation of what it means when I say I bought off-market? So an off-market sale is a a transaction that happens without being advertised, typically online. Um, And and there are different types of of off-market transactions. There's reasons why. I mean, Claire, you can probably run us through a couple of those. So, hang on. When you say without being advertised, so you're saying no physical newspaper, real estate brochures... Or no online advertising either? No online advertising. So no type of advertising. Okay. So it is not officially, if I typed into a search engine for sale, this area, it's not going to come up. So it it may still be through a real estate agent. Okay. Or there can be direct to the the seller. More often than not, there's still an agent involved, but they just haven't gone through the process of marketing the home. Right. Okay. So Claire, your experience with this? 
Yeah, so our office, we about 40% of the stock that we buy or properties we purchase for clients are off-market transactions. So it is a huge part of our business and what we do. Uh, and there, look, not all off-market properties are made equal. I think it's really important to note that. Mm. Uh, but we'll run through some of the different stages of off-market. So there are properties we will call a pre-market off market. And what we're looking at there is perhaps the vendors, the vendors would like to go through a campaign. They may have already staged the property, decluttered, presented it for sale, but they may be interested in potentially wrapping up a sale, you know, in the week or two weeks pre starting an auction campaign. So what that would look like is perhaps the agent being really proactive and having buyers through before that time. Uh, but it's really important to note here that if the vendor actually has committed to going to auction, it may be a really lofty price that will actually stop that process for them, depending on their motivation. So it's very important for us and for buyers in general to understand what the vendor's motivation is. Uh, for example, perhaps it is a different sort of situation and they're, it's more timing. So timing is really important or perhaps the lack thereof Perhaps the vendor has actually purchased a property and they have committed to a 90-day settlement for argument's sake. And what that would look like is that's simply not enough time to run a full and, you know, really beneficial auction campaign when you take into consideration the time it takes to get a property on the market, the four-week auction campaign, and then allowing a good number of buyers to have a flexible range of settlement terms. So you Mm. may only be able to target your 30-day settlement buyers, which in turn, narrows your market. So it could be that they are wanting to get a sale together sooner rather than later. So there's always a reason behind that desire to do things not the traditional way. Mm. So some some of the pre-market... Um, from a buying opportunity, some of the pre-markets, the vendors got very high expectations and they say, well, if we sold it for X amount yep. now, we would sell it. And that's not a great pre-market, off-market opportunity for buyers. But sometimes they've gone and purchased and the urgency is very high. They say, well, we don't want to go through the process. Mm. And if we can get us a price right now, we're prepared to commit. And there's a good opportunity for buyers. Yeah, because there is a lot more than just, you know, putting the ads in the paper, isn't there? I mean, you are, by going through that auction process, and even if it's not an auction, but you still need to have your head in a space where people are going to come to your home. You're going to try and keep it clean for as many months or weeks as it takes. For a lot of people who potentially are in a rush, they just don't want to deal with that. Is, is that a big factor, do you think? And maybe with COVID even more so, I don't want 40 people lined up at my front door yep. for an inspection. Money's not always the the biggest thing for some sellers. Mm. It's the emotional stress. It can be health. Um, it can be the fact that they might need family to help them. All of those types of factors come into consideration. So um, sometimes a quick sale is better than a, a, a higher price sale for some sellers. And is this where it really helps to actually have a buyer's advocate? Because like I'm thinking, well, it's not available and not advertised online. So you guys must have relationships, Claire, with people who are in the know, who can get hold of you very quickly and say, I know you've got clients looking in this area. Look what just came up. Absolutely. So part of our role is to let agents within the areas that we're looking know about our clients' briefs. So that involves emails out once a week. It involves us being on the phone constantly saying, don't forget, we've got a two-bed cottage buyer in in South Yarra up to, you know, 1.5 million. What have you got? Who have have you got in your diary to get through uh, and visit as a vendor this week? How can we 
be proactive in trying to understand where there might be a good off-market mm. opportunity. So having an advocate is certainly important, but as a buyer, getting to know the agents in your area and letting them know your brief as well. I mean, we've touched on keeping your cards close to your chest, but also it's beneficial to let them know what you are looking for so that if something comes up, they can be the ones on the phone to you as well. Mm. Now, does it ever happen though that someone goes through the entire auction campaign, they didn't get the price that they wanted, it gets passed in, and then they go, oh, what are we doing now? Oops, didn't quite work out. We thought we'd get post-auction offers. Hasn't happened. And then do they go off market? Is that a likely scenario? Yeah, it can be. So particularly coming off the back of of COVID or, you know, in the midst of that, there were people that uh, perhaps when there was that really uncertain time, perhaps they... uh, pulled their property from the market because they were unsure or they did run an unsuccessful or failed campaign, Mm. at which time the agent may have advised, well, let's take it offline, let's rest it, uh, but let's know that it's still available there if the right buyer comes up and if you can actually play matchmaker uh, with buyers from other properties and things like that. So particularly now more so than, than ever, there are opportunities like that where the campaign has failed or ceased and we can then get in off the back of that. And often the opportunity to get into that property is not with the agent who had it marketed, it's with one of their competitors who um, sees that opportunity and we work closely with them. We go, well, what do you know that hasn't sold? And, and then they can say, oh, I know that Jealous Craig or Fletcher's or yeah. you know, that one of their competitors had this one, I'll give them a call and see if I can get you through because they're probably still keen to sell. So there's a lot of hustle behind the scenes on this. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and Ben, does, you know, I mean, life happens. People die, people separate, people get divorced. There's lots of complicated family scenarios. Is there any evidence to suggest that homes are being presented now because people are really in desperate stakes? They really need to sell? We're not yet seeing a big rise in forced sales, particularly in the financial space because banks have put the freezes on mortgages. Um, So yeah, that that hasn't really spiked. Um, Some are expecting that they will, but in the off-market space, we do see a lot of that where all the nasty things, death, divorce mm. and debt, and unfortunately, you've got um, sellers who either are unwilling um, or, or incapable of potentially um, presenting their property or going through the, the campaign. Um, so therefore, you know, there's a good opportunity for buyers and for our buyer advocates to be able to get into these properties and get a greater discount on these purchases than they would anything that's marketed because the urgency is high and the competition is very low. And do people think, oh, if we just go off market and we don't spend money on the campaign, that they're just going to make so much more money because they didn't pour it into advertising? Do you have to sort of manage their expectations about that as well? Like, you know, will I make back more than I would have saved on the advertising, Claire? Yeah, so that can be a common misconception is that everything that's off market is better and you can just put it off market because you're not making that commitment. You can just highball the price and and cross your fingers. But I mean, as Ben will say, from our vendor advocacy point of view, it generally is actually better to invest that money into marketing and run a proper campaign. Uh, Yeah. So that's sometimes the better way to go as far as getting a result. You've got to spend money to make money. Yeah, you do. I mean, for, for every dollar you put into advertising, 
you would have to find that it would repay itself back more often than not 10 times over. So um, there are certainly opportunities for, for sellers if um, an agent has got a fantastic result down around the corner and they've had six or seven buyers and that, and that property has genuinely sold for much higher than uh, market value. Being able to spin off a couple of those buyers and get them through off market and getting a deal done on the back of another top result is a good opportunity for a seller. But more often than not, if you're selling without advertising, you're probably going to cost yourself a lot more than the investment of the advertising. And do agents think, oh, I'll go off market. I won't have to you know, work as hard and put together a huge campaign, but I'll still make the same money. <laughs> why, why wouldn't they do 10% of the work for 100% of the fee? So often um, some of these off-market opportunities are driven by the fact that the, uh, the agent's really pushing going down this path. Okay. Well, you are listening to Under the Hammer with Ben Reid and Claire Parks from Ian Reid Buyer and Vendor Advocates. And it is all thanks to Red Energy. Moving house, call local energy retailer Red Energy on 131 806. Now, you mentioned, Ben, that not advertising can be a bit of a pitfall for people. And I have noticed you have some very handy resources on your website. So some traps, so fatal real estate traps exposed. How can I not click on that and download it? A lot of people must be really keen to get that info. We get yeah anywhere between 50 and 100 requests for the booklet um, every week. Uh, you can download it for free on our website or give us a call and we'll, we'll send you a hard copy in the mail. Um, there's 14 traps in there that um, go through the, you know, the common mistakes that people make when selling their home and how to avoid them. And then we talk them through the process that we run in order to get them the best result when selling their property. What's trap number one? If you're a vendor and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to put myself out there. This is what we're going to do. Let's make a change in our life. Oh, we don't want to make a mistake. Number one trap. What do we do? <laughs> number one, it's one of the most common ones, setting your price too high above the marketplace. And we're, we're all afraid when we're putting our home on the market of underselling. So what do we do? We put the price a little bit higher than um, what we would genuinely accept have a negotiation buffer between that price and what um, you're willing to accept and then hope that you can negotiate somewhere in between. But what happens is when a property is overpriced, very few people come and have a look at it and the buyers that do come and have a look at it soon realise that it's overpriced and they're less engaged. So you get less offers, time in the market um, gets much longer and it has the opposite effect of what you want it to achieve. Do you think people get really grumpy when they rock up and it's obvious that the price is way too high if you know comparable, uh, you know, other listings in your area. But it's such a waste of time, isn't it? Like I think people, obviously, Claire, you help people save time, but this is a massive investment. It's a massive chunk of your time and your energy if you're either buying or selling to have someone kind of lure you to their place under false pretenses perhaps. It really would leave a bad taste in your mouth, wouldn't it? It does. For, for, for buyers... Um when they're going into it, more often than not, they're a little bit annoyed on the other side because the price is too low. But yeah. um, buyers generally will have a price that they will like to pay and they'll normally exceed it. So overpriced properties, when they go and have a look at it, they're probably looking at or dealing with buyers that are in a slightly higher price bracket that will end up paying more for a property. Mm. So it's a completely different, um, completely wrong 
property for them and their needs. Um, so not only do you get less people, but you get less people interested. And I'm sure we've mentioned this before, but like I love watching certain renovation shows and real estate shows. Uh, Selling Houses Australia, one of my favourites. And of course, you can listen to Homestyle with Shana Blaze, thanks to Red Energy, another one of our Homestyle podcasts. But you often see people saying, but I need 1.2 million. I need, we need. I'm sorry, (laughs) that's what you need. That's not what I want to pay. So really, that is a very hard mindset to change in a client. Yeah, it's important that you're setting your price expectations based on comparable sales and what's actually happening in the marketplace and what buyers are prepared to pay for properties rather than what you need from the Mm. sale because not often um, do they match if your price expectations are over the mark. And you see people wasting months and sometimes even years where they go and it's like, well, this property has been listed for two years and hasn't moved. And it's like, why didn't you just accept a lower price two years ago? Claire, it must be very strange. (laughs) Well, and it's also as a buyer advocate, I would see that and think, okay, well, uh, what's wrong with it? Mm. You know, you then start to dig a bit deeper and it it overall doesn't set a really good tone uh, to see that property's been around for, for that long. And as probably well. been through multiple agents in that whole period as well. As well. There's, there's no surer way to waste your time and money than setting a price expectation well above market. So, what's the second trap, Ben? Well, the complete opposite setting your price too low. Now, an advertised property where you go through a campaign and it's an auction campaign and it creates a competition, if the price is too low, generally the competition will push prices up. You'll be like, why have we got a, a, you know, 80 people at our inspection? Yeah. Right. So that's not what I'm talking about here. As a private sale or as an off-market sale, if you set your price too low and you sell it to the first person who turns up, chances are you could have got much more. So going through the process, giving yourself some time to go out to market and compare what different buyers um, think the property's worth and making sure that you're exposing it to the market and not setting your price too low and just accepting the first offer um, is a trap if you're doing that. Do you think, though, people are more often likely to make it too high than too low? Surely people err on the high side. Yes, for sure. (laughs) All right, number three, trap number three. And, of course, this is all available on the Ian Reid website. It's a download called Fatal Real Estate Traps Exposed. You'll find the link in the show notes. So grab it if you would like some of these tips explained. So number three. Property sits on the market for too long, right? Some vendors say to us, we don't mind how long it takes us. Our urgency is not high. So long as we get our price, it can take 60, 90 days, six months or longer. We don't care. It's a contradiction in terms because the longer you're on the market, the less likely you are of getting a really good result. The best result almost always happens within the first 30 days. And in fact, it's the first two weeks that are the most important Whenever you hit the market, you've got a pool of buyers which exists at that point in time. Now, these are the qualified buyers. These are buyers that have been out to the marketplace. They've bid on other properties. They've made offers. They've missed out. They're ready to go. And in an auction campaign or in a um, private sale campaign, it's normally the buyers within the first two weeks that buy it. Even if they buy it on auction after four weeks, very rarely do you pick up your successful buyer between week two and week four of a marketing campaign. Ah, so they're yeah. usually there right from the get-go because right they the are get-go. ready. And often they're the first buyer to walk through the property. But as we know, you don't want to sell to the first person. Yeah. You want to create that competition. But if a campaign goes on beyond five, six, seven weeks, buyers start to say, as Claire said before, there must be something wrong with it. The price must be too high. This is a bit of a lemon or there's something wrong. Or they know that there's not the buyer 
um, competition there and they've got much higher leverage to negotiate the price down. So having a marketing campaign and, and a sales strategy that ties things up within a four-week period is very, very important to achieving the highest and best price. It seems really quick, doesn't it, four weeks? But if, if you think that's where you get that optimal interest, that's quite incredible. Yeah. We've analysed thousands of sales and the best result happens between week two and week three of a marketing campaign. And that coincides with when your highest level of, of buyer interest and inspections happen. In, your, your peak in inspections, Claire, you know, normally happen between week one and week two of a campaign and they start to drop off significantly from there. So if whether it be genuine competition or perceived competition, wrapping it up within that first two to four weeks is a really important mm. part of getting the highest and best price for your property. And as we said, if you would like to get that free download, head to all the W's au for your copy of Fatal Real Estate Traps Exposed. Now, we've been keeping an eye on some of the stats. And of course, in the last couple of months, things very much impacted by the COVID-19 restrictions. As we said, fingers crossed, we won't be going there completely again. Claire, what is some of the latest research saying about what the effect of COVID might have been on prices? Yeah, so CoreLogic put out a an article last week. They chose to outline the drops in the market over three in sort of three tiers. They've called them the top quartile, middle quartile, middle quartile, and lower quartile, and that's in refer- reference to price. So they've said that the top quartile, which was properties in excess of nine hundred and fifty nine. 1,500 specifically, Mm -hmm. that market has come off as a whole at 1.3%, where the middle quartile has come off at only 0.6%, and the lower quartile has been the least affected at 0.3%. Okay, so top end of town, slightly harder hit, lower end of town, not as much. But surprisingly, Ben, I would have thought we'd be seeing like double digit figures there that we would have seen drops way bigger than less than 2%. So does that surprise you? Well, it's certainly a big difference from what the, some of them in the media have, <laughs> the have spooked at the 20 to 30%. Uh, Sorry, guilty. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think we will st- start to see those drops continue over the course of the next quarter. There's that lag time between the transaction and when these stats get recorded, and that is um, between the sale and the settlement date. So we would expect that these will start to drop off, but they're certainly not going to be anywhere you know, up in excess of you know, 10 to 15% mm-hmm. over this time. Um, and the so we look at the the top end of town and the biggest um, drop there and that and that is because there's a there's um, less buyers in that space at the moment purely supply and demand if you take um, ten buyers out of the three million to four million dollar price bracket in Turak for example you might be wiping out thirty percent of the marketplace sure and with international travel restric- restrictions especially at the moment you've got to be thinking there's definitely a certain percentage who just aren't there anymore yeah that's right so but you take 10 buyers out of, say, the um, $600,000 price bracket for a little villa unit in the same location, it's not even a drop in the ocean. Yeah. You know, you're not even going to get that um, effect in the marketplace. So that's why the top end of town has been affected more so. Um, we're also finding that there's there, there, are, there are less transactions. And in markets that where we find that are going down, you'll normally find that the lower end of the market within that area are the ones that are selling. The higher end of the market... Um, tend to hold on. So therefore, when they look at the median price, there might be, um, say, 70% of the market 
that sells below the median price, but only 30%. So therefore the median starts to drop, but it's not necessarily a true reflection of what prices have done in that area. Yeah. I think what I've been learning over the last few weeks is that data is one thing, but it's the way you interpret it that gives you a fairer picture. And and look, it is all open to analysis and everyone's got their different opinion on what the stats can kind of translate to in, in the real sales world, but definitely not what I would have thought might've been some of the figures released last week. Yeah, it's been it's been better than we thought, so that's great. Let's hope that that trend continues. Now, Ben, you actually bought the paper in. I haven't seen someone read a physical copy of the paper for <laughs> such a long time, but you actually mentioned uh, a little article that caught your eye in the Sunday Herald Sun on June 28th. Are we just obsessed with ranking suburbs? I mean, we've been doing it ourselves. You know, we've picked suburbs over the last few weeks and profiled them, but most livable suburbs ranked you love articles like this, don't you, Ben? I can see. <laughs> well, it, it's in the vein of what we've been discussing. And um, PwC City Pulse did a, a survey and analysis of, of the most livable suburbs. And their criteria was housing affordability, access to amenities like schools, places of wor- worship and aged care, access to medical centres and hospitals, rate of crime and work from home commute saving as well. Um, okay. So if we look across the board, we go from number one down to uh, number 10 overall, we got Hawthorne East had the perfect score, 10 out of 10. So a lot of Hawthorne East people must have been uh, voting on this, <laughs> I'd suggest. Followed closely by Hawthorne, Richmond, Cranbourne East, which is interesting. We'll talk about that in a sec. Mooney Ponds, Northgate, Malvern and Glen Iris, Surrey Hills and Canterbury, Point Cook and Carnegie. Okay, so if you're living in one of those suburbs, hope you're happy. It sounds yep. like you're enjoying all that that suburb has to offer. Yeah, so most of them are the, are the blue chip suburbs, but sure. the interesting ones are Cranbourne East and Point Cook. Now, I know a little bit of Cranbourne, so I have stepkids that live out in that area. I kind of wouldn't have thought that that would be super high on the list because there's a lot of building out that way, but there's also a lot of congestion and development that leads to traffic snarls, that kind of thing. So what could it be about a suburb like Cranbourne East that can see people actually putting it higher up on their ranking? Well, it would rank much higher in terms of affordability than Hawthorne, for example. The sure, av- yeah. Uh, I don't know the average price off the top of my head, but just based on what we would sell, it would sit somewhere around that 550 you know, to 600 potentially, um, Cranbourne East and Point Cook. Um, but these are examples of, of newer growth suburbs that have that have gone through the new phase 10 to 15 years ago that are now established. They've got some uh, a, a good range of, of larger homes, smaller homes. They've got good cafes and parks and restaurants in these areas now. So it's not all new development. They're, these are established um, newer suburbs. So um, therefore, the livability is much higher than something where it's still paddocks that are being subdivided. And, um, yeah, and burning hot play equipment because yeah. the trees haven't grown to shade yet. <laughs> yeah. so And it's got less of the, the, the churn and burn and the new stuff coming in and turning over. So um, these are suburbs that are now setting up communities. Mm. And I guess that's what it's all about. I can't judge what for someone else is their sense of community. For me, it might be having friends, family and, you know, great social opportunities around. For other people, it could just be having a doctor that's close by that you can catch a train too easily without having to get into a car. So it is very subjective, isn't it? Yep. Accessibility is pretty good. Um, by train and by um, by car along the freeway up the yep. Monash if you don't get stuck in traffic. Um, same goes with Point Cook, which is only 
uh, 20-odd kilometres, 25-odd kilometres out of the CBD, just over the Westgate. Um, but you've got the bay that's right there. You've got parks. And um, yeah, it's it's really quite close to town if you don't have the traffic. Yeah, I think a lot of people have reassessed how much driving and commuting has uh, changed life. When you take away that commute to the office, it really does open up more opportunities, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you so much. It's been uh, wonderful to hear about off-market buying and selling. I'll feel a little more in the know next time someone throws that little casual phrase out at us. And in the next week, I hope you guys can get out there and that you'll uh, be able to enjoy what we thought was going to be a very quiet winter, but is shaping up to be uh, not too bad after all. So busy week ahead for you, Ben? Absolutely. Always is. (laughs) How can we get hold of you if we are buying or selling? Head to our website, ianreid.com.au. Uh, for buyers, go. Uh, you can send us an email at buyers at ianreid.com.au. If you want to get in touch with me, it's ben at ianreid.com.au. And you'll find all of those details in the show notes, along with a link for that little booklet that we were talking about before, Fatal Real Estate Traps Exposed. You can download that from the Ian Reid website. And you've been listening to Under the Hammer with Ben Reid and Claire Parks from Ian Reid Buyer and Vendor Advocates. I'm Jane Neild. Thanks for being with us for Red Energy. If you're moving house, call local energy retailer Red Energy. Make the switch. It is hard moving house, but switching your electricity and gas is easy. Give them a buzz on 131 806. Thanks for listening to Under the Hammer for Red Energy. Moving house, call local energy retailer Red Energy. If you enjoyed Under the Hammer, then check out the other podcasts in the Red Energy Lifestyle Series. For the foodie, enjoy Tuesday with Ash Pollard. Really, the people around here truly lived farm to table. And so that's kind of how I've been cooking. And I know it's trendy now, but it was necessity back then. Moving house, call local energy retailer Red Energy. Thanks for listening to Under the Hammer, part of Red Energy's podcast lifestyle series. Available on your favourite podcast platform and the SEN app.